I'm going to ask you if you open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 20. We're not going to go back to 19 at the moment. We're just going to stay focused on the beginning of this text. But I want to start out by saying that 15 seconds is how much time the Israeli people have to find shelter after a missile is launched at them from the Gaza Strip. 15 seconds, many of them. Those living further north or east of the Gaza Strip in Ashkelon or Ashdod, they'll have about 30 to 45 seconds. Those in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem have about a minute, maybe a minute and a half. And this is a constant reality if you live in the land of Israel. Public warnings such as I'm showing you here, there are many of them. You will see them everywhere. Most of the time they're in Hebrew. I found some English ones to show you this morning. They're meant to keep people on their guard, keep them on their toes. Many of you know, but the Gaza Strip is a section of land on the coast of Israel that is home to the Palestinians who are governed by Hamas. Hamas is a fierce, militant, fundamentalist Islamic organization who took control of that part of Israel in 2007, and they are bent on destroying Israel, especially through terrorist tactics. You probably remember, not this past summer, but last summer in May, May of 2021, that about 1,000 missiles were launched from Hamas in the Gaza Strip against Israel. And there was this international political firestorm against Israel because they, they fought back. And they, when they fight back, they fight back fiercely. They are trained warriors from high school. They spend a couple of years in the military. Most of the time you're walking over there, you see these kids that are so young-looking, swinging these semi-automatics around, just having a great time, very responsible. If they tell you to do something, you do it because they mean it. And that they're very friendly, but they are trained. It's no wonder their economy and their political system is, is so good with people going into it who are trained leaders from the very beginning. It's an amazing place. But they have to remind the world sometimes that they have a right to defend themselves. And that's the conflict here between Israel and the Palestinians living in the Gaza Strip. But last summer was just the latest significant conflict. Hamas has been firing missiles from the Gaza Strip. They do it several times a year. Sometimes it doesn't even make national news. It happens all the time. They like to to launch these balloon-like structures over fields nearby, and the balloons float in, and eventually the bombs drop from the balloons and hit the fields. People are really not that alarmed because most of the the firearms they create are sort of homemade, and they don't really do much, honestly. Uh, But they're, they're getting a little more sophisticated, and so people are getting a little more worried. When we were in Israel a few summers ago, we spent the afternoon in a kibbutz right alongside the Gaza Strip. Uh, If you don't know, a kibbutz is a little settlement that's unique to Israel where people work together and they send their children to the same school together and they farm together and so forth. Only this kibbutz that we were in was actually right along the border of the Gaza Strip. I mean, we literally walked along the red line 
that you see there. And we could see clearly the series of fences keeping people from coming out. We could see the guard towers in the distance. Some of us asked nervously, are they looking at us right now? Yes, they are, they said. And, and they said, why, don't, why aren't they firing at us? We felt a little nervous. They said, believe me, they do not want to fire at an American. <laughs> they do not want what is going to come to them if they do that. I hope that's still true. But um, as we walked back into the housing area, of the kibbutz, we saw the top of a two-story home that had been blown up because a missile fired from the Gaza Strip had landed there about three weeks earlier. I remember when I saw that, reading that in the news, that they had had another attack. And thankfully, no one was killed. But the people in this kibbutz live constantly on their guard, and they're never more than 15 seconds away from a bomb shelter when the sirens go off. The children literally go to school in bomb shelters, and there's always a bomb shelter on the edge of their playgrounds where they're playing, and they're taught from, from the earliest time they can be there. If that siren goes off, you get in that bomb shelter, and they know how to do it. We asked our new Jewish friends the question that was on everybody's mind. Why don't you stay here then? Why don't you go somewhere else? farther away. And the answer, came, the answer comes back, this is our home. We are not going to be driven away because of fear. They're used to the conflict. In fact, if you know anything about the history of Israel since it became a nation once again in 1948, you know that they have had to fight to defend their existence ever since because they have always been surrounded by enemies who would like to destroy them, including at times Egypt to the south and Syria to the north. So the decades of Israel's history since 1948 have been punctuated by wars that Israel has won, followed by various peace treaties that Israel and their neighbors have signed. The Camp David Accords in 1978 was a peace agreement that won them a Nobel Peace Prize. They've, there's two Nobel Peace Prizes they've won for peace treaties along, through the years. But the fighting begins again after that. People get assassinated, and it goes on. There's, there's wars about who's going to occupy the West Bank. I, I don't know. If you, if you win a Nobel Peace Prize for a peace treaty and then the peace treaty falls apart and they start fighting again, do you have to give the prize back? That's a question I have that I haven't Googled yet, but I want to find out. So th this has gone back and forth so many years and various peace treaties have been signed and broken and it's a detailed and complicated history and you can't just read about it and assume you know what's going on. If you live over there and start talking to people, you realize this is very complicated what is going on. And the people of Israel and the Jews living there, they want peace. Especially you talk to the younger generations, they just want to coexist. They just want to get along. The Jewish young people want that. They want shalom. In fact, that's their greeting, as you know, in Israel. When they say hello and sometimes goodbye, they just say shalom. That means peace. It means I hope you're well. I hope your family's well. I hope everything's going holistically for you. I hope you're healthy. Shalom means may you have rest and prosperity in every part of life. That's what they want. The nation of Israel longs for peace. But this morning, if we read the scripture and interpret it correctly, literally, they will never have peace until the return of the Prince of Peace to their land. That's the exciting thing to me about walking around in Israel and like going to Jerusalem. It's not just what happened in the past and, oh, Jesus walked here. That's thrilling enough. But I think of he is going to be here again. He's going to be landing in this place, the Prince of Peace who will rule over their nation and draw all the other nations to himself. Even if the Israelis and the Palestinians create a peaceful coexistence that lasts for a long, long time, they still will never know true peace until they open their hearts 
to the God of peace, their Messiah, their King, Jesus. That is what Jesus offered his people in the Gospels when he preached the gospel, the good news about the kingdom to them. When he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven, that means the the kingdom that will come from God is at hand. And when he said things like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle for the rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Or when he said uh, to his, his disciples, go ahead into the villages and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus would teach the people what their heart response must be in order to enter the kingdom that he was offering them and this kingdom that was going to be established on earth in order for God to truly bring it to them. But as a nation, Israel ultimately rejected that kingdom because they rejected their king. And promise after promise in the Old Testament foretelling the kingdom. We we just read, John Bott just read some this morning. Fascinating promise. Do you hear what, what he just read? God said, Sooner will heaven and earth stop being the sun rises every day and goes down every night and the seasons change. Sooner will that happen. And God established that at the beginning of creation and said it's never going to change. Sooner will that happen than I will break my promise to keep a ruler of Israel on the throne of David or that I will not bring this kingdom If you do not believe in a literal political kingdom of Jesus Christ that is coming, you have to deal with what the Old Testament and the New Testament tells us specifically about the reality of this kingdom. The Old Testament foretells this kingdom. Jesus preaches this kingdom. And so much of it so far is not yet fulfilled until we get to Revelation chapter 20. So Jesus appears to John, John the apostle, a Jewish believer, Jesus' last living disciple at the end of the first century. And it reveals to him what is going to happen in the future and encourages him to tell the church that this kingdom is still coming, that there's coming a day leading up to the kingdom when the Lord will call thousands of Jews to faith in their Messiah. They will be witnesses for him throughout the earth, even as God is pouring judgment upon the world because of its sin. This is what we've been studying in all the book of Revelation up to this point. And finally, at the climax which we're reading right now at the end of 19 and the beginning of 20, at the climax, the Lord will return bodily to earth and fulfill the promise of his kingdom. And we've seen in recent weeks in Revelation 19, the heavens open, the Lord Jesus returns, he conquers those who hate him and hate his people, and he sets up his earthly kingdom. No peace treaty will have to be signed. This will be a fulfillment of the new covenant we just read about in in Jeremiah. The new covenant promised by God in the Old Testament, already ratified through the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Most of what we know about this kingdom is really from Old Testament prophecy. Old Testament prophecy goes on and on about this kingdom. But this is how these brief words here, these brief verses describe it in Revelation 20. Let's read the text uh, together, just verses 1 through 6 this morning. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. 
Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, what he had already been talking about in verse 5, or in verse 4. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, as I've been saying in this brief series on chapter 19, verse 11 through 20, verse 6, as you see there, the final return of Jesus Christ is the climax of the age of human history on this earth. We've got the eternal state and the new earth to come. But on this earth, this is the climax because in the coming of Christ, all that God promised through his chosen people, Israel, starting with the Abrahamic covenant, will finally be fulfilled. This is the big deal of this section that causes us to rejoice. In Revelation 19, verses 11 through 20, verse 6, we see the promise fulfilled to Israel of a conquering king who will reign on David's throne. And we see the promise fulfilled of a defeated enemy. And we see the promise fulfilled of a righteous kingdom. And even though I already said, as we saw last week, that the kingdom is described more in the Old Testament than it is here, I want to take time this morning to look more today at what the book of Revelation says about this kingdom in particular and show you how it supports the overarching theme of Revelation, which is the vindication of the Lord and his people. Now, before we look at the text more closely, I haven't done this very often, but I want to do it this morning for just a minute. Looking at a timeline so that we have the same order of events in your mind that is in my mind, just so you understand a little more about what is happening in this kingdom. This will go pretty quickly here, but I believe personally that the next event on the calendar, we don't know when it's going to happen, but it will be the rapture of the church where the Lord will come to take away those who believe in Christ now, who are part of his church. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Thessalonians 4. When he says the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And then after the rapture, the events of Revelation 6 through 19 that we've been studying for quite some time take place. God is calling sinners to repentance even as he is pouring out his judgment upon sin and Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, that unholy trinity of the tribulation period, they bring all of the world's governments together against the Lord and his people. This is a period of time that lasts for seven years. Uh, these, these two halves, three and a half and three and a half, keep coming together. So this is a seven-year period. And then at the end of that seven-year period, it's what we're studying right now, the return of the king. The Lord returns to judge his enemy, his enemies who are gathered against him and his people in this display of power and glory. We refer to this properly as the second coming of Christ and the battle that he arrives at with his saints in which he conquers his enemies is the battle of Armageddon. 
And then Jesus sets up his government on this earth that we call the millennial kingdom or the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ that our text speaks of. I've spoken to uh, some believers over recent weeks, and sometimes there's a sort of a blending in our minds between this kingdom on this earth that we're living on right now and the eternal state on the new earth. These are two separate things. That will become clear as we finish out studying the book of Revelation. But this is the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth, fulfilling what he promised to do on this globe. This is the literal, political, glorious reign of the Lord on the earth as promised. But there is one more part of this timeline that Jesus speaks about in the Gospels that's not mentioned here in Revelation. And I want you to see this part because I think it expands our understanding of what we read in the New Testament. And that is the part about the judgment of the nations. After the battle of Armageddon, there will be a period of time as the government is established. And during that time, Jesus will pass judgment on those who survived the tribulation period. Some will be welcomed into the new kingdom. Others will perish. And that is what Jesus speaks of in Matthew 25, for instance, when he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him and he will sit on his glorious throne... Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from the other as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus says many things like this in the Gospels. I had many of them on the slides to show you this morning, but we were going to be here till like 2 o'clock, so I had to take some of those away. But I want to point out this one to you. Most of you are very familiar with this text. I want you to understand this is in a kingdom context. Matthew 7, when Jesus declares, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is coming from heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The idea that you cannot hold sin and cover it up by good works. Many of you are very familiar with that text, but you might not have thought about it in its specific context. This is the context. This is the time, the judgment of the nations, because in the context, Jesus is preaching to his people about their entrance into their kingdom, the Jewish kingdom. In fact, he begins the whole Sermon on the Mount with the words, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs, and you could repeat it with me, there is a kingdom of heaven. We're used to reading the Gospels and taking everything as a sort of a general spiritual principle, but I challenge you to read through the Gospels, paying careful attention to Jesus' preaching and teaching about the kingdom. And you will be surprised how many specific things Jesus declares about this time period, which will finally be fulfilled on the earth, literally. 
So there's coming this time on earth, this judgment of the nations, and all the believers will be gathered together, and all the unbelievers will be gathered together, and those who hearts, whose hearts are hardened against the Lord, who will not, after all they have seen, submit to him, will pass into judgment, while those who know the Lord will enter the eternal kingdom. There are still, they are still descendants of Adam, these people entering the kingdom. They have corrupt sin natures, but they will be like those of us now who know Jesus Christ. The Spirit will be alive in them and they will behold the Lord reigning on the earth. And as we already read, Satan will not be there deceiving everyone. It will be a time such as the earth has never known where no one is alive who does not know and follow the Lord, at least at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. That's why Jeremiah can say, as we read earlier, as we heard John read, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord. You got to know the Lord. You got to know him. Have you met the Lord? Because they will all know me already. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. That ratio will change during the thousand years because given a thousand years of peace and prosperity and perfect health, like we talked about last week that we read about from the Old Testament about this kingdom, there's going to be a lot of children born. There's going to be a lot of homeschool minivans in the kingdom. I mean, they're going to be packed. They're going to be like buses, okay? There's going to be children everywhere, and they're going to grow. And, and, and we read this last week in the Old Testament. When if, if, a, if a child dies at 100, it's going to be like he died young. There's going to be peace and prosperity. Think about all of those people born and the Lord reigning over them. And we haven't come to verse 7 yet. I'll read that before we're finished here this morning. But remarkably, sadly, there will be people who sit under the reign of Jesus Christ in that kingdom who still will reject him in the end because Satan will deceive them again when he's released for a little while, as it says in verse 3. But at least at the beginning of the kingdom, there are no unbelievers in the kingdom. Now, let's take a look a closer look at the elements of this kingdom. There are two main elements that I want to emphasize from this account here in Revelation 20 this morning. First, I want to look again at the binding of Satan at the beginning of the text, as verses one through three, and second, at the reigning of believers with Christ. Now, next week, I'm going to look at the kingdom again, and we're going to transition into the rest of the chapter, okay? But this morning, I just want to look at those two main ideas that you see there. The binding of Satan in verses 1 through 3, and then after that, the reigning of believers with Jesus Christ. Now, as we saw last week, uh, when we see, what we see in the words of, of, of Christ in the Gospels, and what we even heard this morning as John read Jeremiah, there is so much more about the kingdom that we can study. But these two elements, the binding of Satan and the reigning of believers, are what is focused on in this text for good reason. Remember the message and purpose of the whole book of Revelation, the vindication of the Lord and his people, that one day the Lord will reveal who is really in charge of this world. And in that day, all those who gave their lives for him, many of them martyred, will be vindicated. That is, they will be shown that they were, it will be shown to all that they were in the right. They made the right decision in following the Lord. They will be vindicated. And that is what the Lord uses to comfort his people today. That's why he gave revelation to John, to give to the churches. This hope about the future. And I hope as we work through here in the next minutes that we have left, you'll be encouraged again about this coming Hope. So let's look at verses 1 through 3, the binding of Satan. 
The binding of Satan reveals to all that Satan, for all his raging, for all his vitriolic hatred of the Lord and his people, for all the trouble he causes on the earth, for all the people he has blinded so they don't see the gospel of Christ, he is still on a leash and he can only do what God allows him to do. We've seen this all the way through Revelation. I, I keep pointing out every time we come to a text where Satan does so much, and the text actually says, John actually explains, he, he could, he's allowed to do this or that. He's not allowed to do anything else. So we see it all throughout Revelation. But as I pointed out last week, there is a dram, dramatic indication that he's on a leash here. Because he's described in verse 2 as the dragon and more specifically, that ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan. In other words, the one who near the beginning of creation slithered into the garden to deceive the woman to sin against God, the one who led the world into rebellion against the creator. He's called the devil here. The diabolos in Greek, it means uh, one who accuses or slanders or criticizes it. We get our word diabolic and diabolical from the word here, from the Greek word, one who criticizes, one who slanders. Back in Revelation chapter 12, when the devil is thrown out of the heavenly realm and confined to the earth, if you can remember that far back uh, in, in the study, there's rejoicing in heaven and there's this voice that says, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers, that's Satan, has been thrown down the one who accuses them day and night before our God. In other words, there's a connection. There's a connection between the devil, the accuser of believers, being cast down and the ability for the kingdom to come and to flourish. He's also called Satan in this text. That's the Hebrew word for the devil, actually. It means enemy, adversary, because Satan is just that. He's the arch enemy of God. And, and mark it down, it, it's happening every moment of your life. He is not resting all he wants to do is what, use whatever forces he has to lead God's creation against rebel, to rebel against him. He's doing it cunningly all of the time. And Satan has seemingly had his way in the world, arguing against the justification of believers, doing whatever he can through his demonic forces that he commands in the unseen world to deceive people and lead them into rebellion against God. But we are reminded that Satan is on a leash, that he does his diabolical work in the world, always within the confines of what God knows he can allow. Because as I pointed out last week, the single unnamed angel, doesn't even get an, he doesn't even get Gabriel or Michael for this job, as far as we know. An unnamed angel has all the authority he needs to grab hold of this dragon, Satan, and wrap a great chain around him and drag him down to the bottomless pit, literally to the abyss, it says in the original language. The abus, as we say in Greek, is the same word. Most of you speak a lot of Greek, you just don't know it. D dragging him down to the pit, throwing him into this pit. It's, it's, it's actually a shaft, as it's described in the scripture, that opens up where there's a door, a narrow part, that opens out as it goes down throws him into this pit, this shaft, and slams the door and seals it. And Satan is imprisoned. That's the word it uses later in the text. He's imprisoned 
for a thousand years. His influence is taken out of the way. And the indication is that the flourishing of life and righteousness in the thousand year reign of Christ and the peace that is on the earth is in part because Satan can no longer confuse and manipulate and deceive. But that situation immediately changes when Satan is let out of his prison. I'm going to go down and read a verse we haven't read yet. Uh, Verse 7. John says, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. We sometimes say the four winds of the earth, all over the earth. Gog and Magog to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. You mean to tell me here are people who lived on the earth during the righteous reign, the glorious reign of Jesus Christ himself and saw for themselves the miraculous way people are living and the peace and goodness in the world. And as soon as Satan is loose from prison, he can still deceive them in numbers that are described as the sand of the sea who think they can overthrow Jesus Christ? Yes, that is how powerfully cunning Satan is. And he's loose in the world right now, which is why we have to be on our guards. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That is why his influence during the kingdom is taken out of the way. And I want to say that that leads us actually to a question which is not expressed in the text, but I think it comes to mind when we read this and take it seriously. Maybe it's even crossed your mind as I've been talking about this right now. If Satan is so diabolical, if he corrupts the people of the world and leads people into rebellion against God so that they experience the judgment of God and God is powerful enough to take him out anytime he wants, why does God cast the beast and the false prophet alive into the lake of fire in chapter 19? We've already seen that. But he locks Satan up so that he can let him loose in a thousand years to deceive more people. And if we're going to ask that question, we might as well go all the way back to the garden and ask, why did God allow Satan to corrupt the world in the first place through deceiving Eve? And then Eve gives to Adam and Adam takes the responsibility for the fall of the human race. Why did God allow that? Every question you can ask that challenges the plan of God can go back to that question. When your friends sometimes will, will say to you who, who are struggling with faith or maybe they're unbelievers and they challenge you, why, why is there evil in the world? If God's a good God, either he doesn't love us because he lets evil go or he's not powerful enough to stop it or he doesn't know everything. He doesn't know that it's going on. You've got to choose one of those things and, and, and if he is all loving and all powerful and, and he can control what's going on and he knows all about it and yet it still is going on, then he's really not the God that we want to worship, they will say. It's really the atheist's only offensive attack on Christianity. And we can ask any combination of those kinds of questions, but they really all go back to the garden in one sense or another. Why was Satan allowed in the first place? Why the devil? And while we cannot understand everything that God does or his reasons for different things, I think it helps us to answer the question if we remember why God created us in the first place. 
Our chief end, a lot of you could say, based on the catechism we all know, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is a biblical definition of our purpose for existence. We're here to glorify God. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, give glory to God. And and God wants us to enjoy him. He wants fellowship with him. He wants us to know him. That is why we are here. And if you can't look at the things you are doing and believing in your life, that that is the ultimate goal, you have to make some adjustments so that you can glorify God with your life. That, that's how we live as believers. That's our sanctification. Always making those adjustments, adjustments by the will of God so that we're glorifying God with our lives. That's why we're here. It is the only thing that will ultimately fulfill us, a knowledge of God that leads us to worship him. If sin had never entered the world, how would we have ever experienced the love and peace and truth of God where we really understand it. We would have known love. There was love in the garden. We would have known truth. There was truth in the garden. We would have known peace. What would we have known of the mercy of God if God had never been able to demonstrate mercy? What would we know of God's judgment if it was never needed? How would we rejoice with hope in the coming vindication if vindication were never needed? Revelation would never have been needed. How could we appreciate love except for hate or kindness except for how ugly unkindness is? How would we be able to appreciate the light unless we knew what the darkness was? Somehow God knows that this is the way that we will be able to know him in all his attributes and all of the expressions of his personality and that he is receiving greater glory, God knows. In, In some way, he is receiving greater glory and we are able to enjoy him more because of the contrast of evil in the world. I know that's not a complete answer to the question about the devil and the evil in the world and and why God knows that the world he ordained is the best possible world. When we go through challenging situations, when we face trials and sorrow and disappointment, and we all do, and loss and pain, all of these weights that seem crushing and smothering are the only reason we ever know anything about the strength of God and the hope of God that we have through Jesus Christ because he has taken us. If we had testimony time this morning, we would see a lot of testimonies. He has taken us through those trials and he has given us strength and we know him better because of that. And we give in to temptation and fall into sin and repent. We know the mercy of God and the compassion of God and the forgiveness of God. And when this causes us to cry out, glory to God, hallelujah, what a savior. In the midst of our struggle, God receives more glory and our desire for him deepens and we know what it means to glorify God and enjoy him. In fact, if I can transition to the second emphasis of this text, which comes after verse 3, the reigning of believers with Christ, I think we find another example of exactly what I'm talking about. I want you to look at more carefully at what John is saying, starting in verse 4. He says, then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I want to make sure we understand what's going on here. The authority to judge has to do with rendering a decision, deciding a case. 
Don't think that in the millennial kingdom there will be no crimes committed and accusations made and verdicts to be handed down. The reign of Christ is a government with Christ as its king and the earth will be populated by those, especially at the beginning, mainly who know Jesus Christ as their savior, but they are still fallen with unglorified bodies just like we see now. And even though, especially at the beginning of the kingdom, the majority of people will know and love the Lord, they will still sin and they will be sinned against. And sometimes decisions will have to be rendered. Think of the level of courts that we have in the United States. We have courts on the state level, village courts, city courts, small claims courts, appellate courts, courts of appeals, state supreme court. We have federal courts. We have district courts, U.S. Court of Appeals, U.S. Supreme Court. There are thrones or seats of government in our country and all over the world. And the same kind of thing will be true in the reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the perfect judge, but he cannot hear every single case in the world. He will share his reign like it says here in this verse. He will commit part of his authority to others. Who are these others who will reign with him? Well, we'll keep reading. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. All, all the same people group he's talking about here. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. I'll just remind you, it's just a curiosity, but this is the longest verse in the whole Bible that we just read here. It's all one verse. He says he saw their souls. And that indicates that their fallen physical bodies have already died. These are souls. These are departed, uh, those who have left the body. But then they came to life. They were resurrected when Jesus returned. They are the ones ruling with Christ. They are sharing his throne, his government. The ones ruling in the millennial kingdom are the ones who have already experienced the blessing promised to those who conquer through Christ, those who remain faithful to him to the end. Jesus has promised that they will reign over the earth with him in their resurrected bodies. Notice that these who reign are described in two ways, what they did do and what they didn't do. Notice it says what they did do, they died as martyrs. It says they were beheaded. Literally, they were axed, it says in the the Greek text. It doesn't necessarily mean that all of them died the same way, but simply that they were executed, most likely because of their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, particularly because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And the focus is on those who died during the tribulation period. Going all the way back to chapter 13, we won't take time to to look back there, but uh, a lot of people were martyred for their faith, it says, in chapter 13. So what they did do is die as a martyr, but what they did not do is participate in the false worship of the Antichrist. They remained distinct by refusing to bow, just like the three Jewish men in Daniel 3 who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's image and were thrown into the fiery furnace. This is the kind of life they lived during this time period. They would not worship the beast. They would not receive his image. In short, these are the conquerors Jesus describes in the book of Revelation through the whole book, through the writing of John. They are those who remained faithful to the Lord to the end. And now, and now, they reign with Jesus Christ. Are these the only ones who reign with Christ? Do you have to die as a martyr? 
or resist the pressure to bow to the beast and its image in order to be in this group he's talking about here? No, I'm sure that there are others who are reigning with Christ who have resisted the pressure of the world to worship someone other than God and who've also given their lives in one way or another for Christ. The promise that we will reign with Christ goes all the way back to the words of Jesus in the Gospels. For instance, in Matthew 19, Peter says to Jesus, see, we left everything to follow you. What are we going to have? What's the end going to be of that? What, what is, what's going to happen to us in the end? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus even tells them what part of the government they're going to be in. And later, Paul says to Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. That means this promise is extended to those of us who are here who follow Jesus Christ unto the end. Jesus himself promises the church in Revelation 3, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered through his death and resurrection and sat down with my father on his throne. That is a stunning promise that we will reign with Jesus Christ. Jesus says this to the church of Laodicea. And if you know the background there, that is an amazing thing in and of itself. Later in Revelation 5, the heavenly chorus is singing the praises of Jesus, the Lamb, who is worthy to open the scroll. Why is he worthy to open the scroll? He says, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So no, those martyrs, martyrs during the tribulation for their refusal to bow to the beast in his image, they're not the only ones who will be reigning with Christ during this thousand-year kingdom. But I think our attention is drawn to those who died in this fashion in verse 4 because the Lord is underscoring the vindication of his people. These are the ultimate example of the future blessing that Jesus is holding out for his church to see that we might be greatly encouraged. Those who survived, I should say, who conquered in the tribulation period, they gave their lives for Christ in that terrible time when Satan will come and bring the nations together to put incredible pressure on people to follow him. They stood during that time. They were even beheaded, he says in that text. And now, and now they are reigning with Christ. They call out in chapter 6, How long, O Lord, before you will avenge our blood with those who dwell on the earth? And in chapter 13, they, they are ordained to die for their faith. He says in that chapter, remember, if, if, you're, if you're to die with the sword, to the sword you'll go. But in the end, they are not simply stepping onto heaven's shore. They are not merely safely home with the Lord. They are all those things, but that's not all there is to it. They are reigning with Christ. They are given regal authority over the earth. It is a great reversal. It was a false and satanic authority that usurped the authority of Christ over the earth that called evil good and good evil that ruled over the beloved saints of the Lord, exalting those who worshiped the false God and his image and, and hunting and slaughtering those who worshiped the living and true God. But now, now, how the situation is reversed. 
The Antichrist and the false prophet have been cast conscious and alive into the lake of fire. Satan himself has been imprisoned and they are the ones reigning over the earth in glorious splendor like the Lord who bought them with his blood. And the Lord this morning wants us to know this. He wants us to consider this when we feel pressured to bow to the culture around us, when we feel marginalized, when what we know is right and true is trampled on in this world, when we face persecution because of our faith, because of our faith in Jesus Christ. So let me ask again as we close here, why the devil? Why Satan? It is because of the devil that these believers are hunted and killed. He's directly responsible in some way for the policies that cause them to be despised and targeted in the tribulation period. But without the death and pain and the, and the trust in the midst of despair, there would never be the wonderful exaltation, something this, that is glorifying to God. And Jesus himself said as he recognized that the nation of Israel as a whole had rejected him, he said, truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus knew that the way down led to the way up, that the path of suffering led to glory, that the sacrifice led to reward. And Paul recognized in Philippians 2 the same thing, that because of these things, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And just as we share in the suffering of Christ, we also share in the glory of Christ and the glory that he brings to the Father. We repeat Paul's words when a believer passes into glory. And you know these words, that we sorrow, right? But not as others who have no hope. But as believers in Christ, we also suffer, but we don't suffer as those who have no hope. And we know loss and pain and toil and exhaustion and injustice but not as those who have no hope. And the Lord desires us to live in light of this hope, this hope of ultimate vindication. As we pray daily, may your kingdom come. And let's really mean that. And let's be encouraged the way the Lord wants us to be encouraged. Father, thank you for...